1: Welcome to the 14th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Carl Richards. Some of you may already be familiar with Carl's work. In addition to being a financial advisor, he's the creator of BehaviorGap.com, the author of a book by the same name, and a columnist for the New York Times, all where he writes about the emotional and behavioral challenges that investors struggle with and how investors, often with the help of a real financial advisor, can overcome them. What's fascinating about Carl, though, is that despite his success, where he's now paid tens of thousands of dollars to speak around the world about how to overcome the behavior gap and the value of financial planning, is that he still goes through the same internal struggles that all of us do in, in trying to internalize and get comfortable with our own value, despite all external evidence to the contrary, that people really are willing to pay us for our expertise. In fact, the phenomenon has a name. It's called the imposter syndrome. And it's something I think virtually all financial advisors experience as we follow the path to success, growing a larger business and working with more affluent clients that eventually takes almost all of us to a point of saying, I can't believe how much some clients are willing to pay me for what I provide them. In some cases, I think it even makes us feel guilty thinking I I must be charging too much and, and changing our own fee structure because we feel guilty about what we're getting paid. And so in this episode, we talk in depth about the imposter syndrome, how many of us end up self-sabotaging our career and our business success driven by the fear that if we take chances, someone might realize we're, we're just an imposter, even if we're really not, and as a result, never experience the success that we could. We also talk about how the imposter syndrome even leads to many financial advisors continuing to provide those thick, voluminous financial plans where in many cases, all clients really want to be told is what to do by someone they trust. But but we create that big, thick financial plan to validate our value to ourselves because who can really believe that any client would pay thousands of dollars for a one-page financial plan? Except, of course, that many do. Be certain to listen to the end as well, where Carl talks about how he sees the future of financial planning as one where technical competency is just the minimum table stakes to be a financial advisor, and why communication skills will be the key to success going forward. He even provides a great tip about what any of you as financial advisors can do to get better at this ourselves. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Carl Richards. Welcome Carl Richards to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Michael, thank you. Well, first of all, let me tell you something. Thank you for doing what you're doing. It's a super generous gift to all of us. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on.
1: My pleasure. It's you know, we've had great feedback so far. Email feedback has been great. The reviews on on iTunes and such have been great. You know, note for all of you out there, if you have a moment, please go to iTunes and leave a little review. I know it sounds campy to ask that, but the reality is for the, like how iTunes works, the way it tells people about this show is based on reviews. So they make me ask you, uh, please you know, take a moment and go to iTunes and review the show. If you're listening to this on an, on an Apple device.
2: And don't, don't listen to anything Michael says. Just listen to me, go review the show on iTunes for Michael, because as goofy as it sounds, it actually matters.
1: It actually matters. Well, thank you, Carl. I, I appreciate that plug. So, I, so I, I've been looking forward to this episode because you've had a career that I, I think – frankly, I think a lot of advisors would be jealous of. Like you 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 built and sold an advisory firm. You became a speaker or frankly, I'll say like an, an international speaker on financial planning. Let me ask this way. How many continents have you been on to speak about financial planning now?
2: The only one – well, I haven't been to Antarctica and I haven't been to South America. I go to Shanghai next month, so that'll be the first time in China. But yeah, all over. It's crazy. I don't even know. Well, I'm sure we'll get into it more, but it's just – Yeah,
1: and you've got a, a regular column in New York Times talking about personal finance issues and, and we're director of investor education for Buckingham Asset Management and BAM Advisor Services in St. Louis and published uh, two books on financial planning for consumers as well. So – so I actually want to start by talking a little bit about the book you did last year, which was called The One-Page Financial Plan. And, and I know it was written primarily for consumers, but there were a lot of advisors that read it as well. And and I did hear shock from a couple of advisors. I, frankly, I think probably a few that didn't read the book in full, but were just reacting to the title. Like this, this you call me a one-page financial plan. There's a lot of Carl's one of us. Doesn't he know? Like, it takes a lot of analysis to do a good plan. You can't simplify it down to one page. You're, you're, you're undermining our value proposition as financial advisors. I'm curious. I I think this is a good way to, to kind of capture the essence of how you view financial planning. So when you talk about like a one page financial plan for someone, what does that, what does that mean?
2: Yeah. That's a good question. Let me, let me start by telling you a quick little story. My, daughter, who was probably nine at the time of the story when I was working on this book. And the way these books work for me, because I'm about about to dive into the, the next book, and the way they work for me is it's like fruit. Like, I don't want to write them and it's like fruit on a tree is the only comparison I can make that is, like, it's gonna, like, it's so ripe it's gonna fall off the tree and rot if I don't, like, it. it's it's sort of in a, I don't know what the right word, a, a compulsion, right? I feel compelled Write it, and this idea behind the one-page financial plan. So they take a while. It germinates for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For like, and I already know almost. I can almost feel what's like seven years out. This book i have worked on for a long time. My daughter, who's like nine, I think about nine at the time, if I've got my math right. I hear her talking to one of her friends, and one of her friends is says like, "What is your like What does your dad do for work, or something? Some something along those lines. Like, what is your dad always in that office working on, or something like that?" My Daughter said, Oh, he's, he's writing a book. And her friend said, Oh, what's it called? And my daughter said, The one page financial plan. And then there's this long pause, and her friend goes, Then why is it taking him so long? <laughs> so just write the whole thing, like make your page.
1: What's, yeah, what's, yeah, what's, what's
2: the thing? So, so listen, I, I understand where that concern, you know, obviously, you're not the first person to say, that about sort of maybe the concern around the value proposition of most advisors. I understand it. I want to be, I want everybody to understand, your audience to understand. Like I, I understand it. I feel it. I know what you mean. But I totally, completely disagree. And so that, that, that's. I just want. I just want to be clear. Like I'm, and we should have had the little disclaimer section. I am often wrong, but never in doubt. Right. So uh, the the
1: mark of a true entrepreneur. <laughs>
2: Here's why I disagree. I in terms of it affecting its value, I think it did I at least my experience with the consumer world is that it did the opposite. What we think our value is is not what the public thinks our value is. And and, and what they want and we're also scared of this. What they want is their lives simplified. And what we do is we think, and we don't do this on purpose. Look, I know most of you, in fact, I dare say all of your audience, like we don't have any concerns about ethics and morality and all that stuff. Like this is the choir. I know that to be true, but what what snuck into our industry, mainly because it wasn't a, you know, there was no professional track when you and I started, right? Like we came up through the the bank or the insurance, or in my case, the brokerage industry, and we thought, hey, there must be a better way, and we all sort of morphed into this thing called financial planning. But what snuck in there was this thing, and it, it's a natural human tendency to feel like as we get more sophisticated and as our knowledge grows and our technical skill grows, we, there's this natural inclination to think everybody else cares, and then there's the other side of that. There's an, another version of that, which is... I'm sorry. I just got
1: to pause there for a moment. Like, there was a harshness about what you just said that I know I know wasn't meant that way. Like, it's it's just sort of the truth. But like We learn all this technical stuff, and then we get stuck in the
2: idea that someone else actually cares. Yeah. Well, no, that people... No, I, and I mean that. Like, thanks for pointing it. Like, what, all I'm saying is they absolutely care that you're technically... On point, right? Like, I think a real financial advisor, a real financial planner has to be technically strong or a, a, a close partnership with somebody who is, but it's no longer enough. What people actually want, they don't care about your solutions at all. Right? They care about their problems. And and I don't think any place... Now, listen, I understand what I'm saying is, well, yeah, of course, you've got to have the technical stuff. But I don't know of any profession where it's more true that nobody cares about how much you know until they know how much you care. And so all I'm suggesting is we have this little problem where it, it happens with attorneys, it happens with CPAs, it happens with doctors. We sort of get stuck inside, like inside baseball talk. We think everybody else wants to know how smart we are. And then the nefarious version of that is we were taught a sales technique. I know I was taught a sales technique of like the old, like dig a hole, throw the client in it, stare down at the client and say, Hey, I'm the only one with the rope.
1: Oh, that's so true. I'm flashing back to sales training days. Yep.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and and I know like none of this audience would purposely do that. I know that, but, but I think it's a sneaky little thing that we somehow, we worry that if we make it too simple people won't pay us anymore they won't need us anymore and i have found the opposite to be true under the assumption i'm making one huge assumption which is completely fair of this audience and that is that you're you're technically really solid so here's what i like to compare it to if you imagined if you imagined me drawing something on a whiteboard and on one side i labeled it simplistic and, and I, this is, this will sum this all up for me. It, it, on one side I labeled it simplistic and then I drew a line from simplistic and then as the line was going along it got really, really, really like a big ball of yarn, right?
1: Yep, which is like that's real life, right?
2: Yeah, it's real life. It's like all of the stuff we deal with, like, oh, how do we do this? And uh, they want to retire here. uh, All the trade-offs we have to analyze, all the assumptions, all the capital market assumptions, standard deviation, correlation, and returns of every asset class, like all of that stuff that we've got to dig into and understand and deal with. And then out the other side, once the line comes out the other side, if we label that big ball of yarn, we could label that complexity. And we label the the point at the other side, if we label that elegant simplicity, and then we go back to Oliver Wendell Holmes quote, which was, I, would, I wouldn't give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but I'd give my right arm for the simplicity on the other side. And all I'm saying is you, my friends, all of your audience live. They already by default, because look, fake financial advisors are simplistic, no technical skills. You just got to sell crap and hope that... And you got to throw people in a pit, stare down at them. You got to do all that stuff. Real financial advisors, which is definitely your audience, are elegantly simple, right? And the, so all I'm saying is what they want, what they want, what most of them want, metaphorically and stereotypically engineers aside, what they want is not to go through that ball of yarn with you. They just want to know that you've been through it and take, and have you take them to the other side. And I have found some of the best financial advisors I've ever met in my life do that on a piece of cardstock or a yellow pad and a pen and a calculator. And now, behind the scenes, we know they've calculated it 15,000 times. So that's all I'm saying is the output, the one-page plan was really, it was the picture on the front of the box. It wasn't the stuff inside.
1: So I got to ask, so like playing, I don't know, maybe this is playing devil's advocate. I mean, I think it's an interesting example to look at. Doctors and lawyers and, and and other professions where there's a lot of technical competency, there's a lot of complexity. They're both professions that are known for having people loaded up with jargon, and you know most people do not enjoy getting jargon thrown at them from lawyers and doctors. Right? Just like tell me how I'm doing, tell me what I need to do. We when we're on the consumer side of expert services, I agree with you. I think we get right back to the the same place. Like I, I just want someone I trust who's going to tell me what to do. But – and there's a – like the big but to me is – but there are questions about technical competency with financial advisors that I don't have or at least not in the same way with doctors and lawyers. Like at least for God's sakes, I know they went to med school or law school. They got a degree. They passed a bar exam or you know board exams. Like there's been some vetting before I ever get to the point where I show up across from them. And I'm trying to get advice for them. And, and in the world of financial advisors, like you highlighted it when you when you made the point. Like there, there might be some of us who are technically competent, but we want to sell elegant simplicity. Then there's a subset of people who are not trained, who are not educated, who have only been taught to sell and deliver one simple thing. And you just throw everybody into a hole and then dangle it out to them and see who grabs it. So if I'm competent and I want to be in the business of elegant simplicity, how am I supposed to compete against the people who actually just are simple and don't have the depth? Like, do I still have to produce the 50-page plan? Because like it's not about the client reading it. It's just this is the only way I can demonstrate that I actually did the work and know what I'm talking about. Like, is that still a valid reason to produce a 50-page financial plan?
2: Look, who I, I think you're still producing right? Like you've got that stuff behind the scenes. We all know for compliance purposes that most likely you're going to have to set a two-inch thick book in front of them anyway. I'm just saying that the cover, well, I want to get back to your point because it's really important, but just to be clear, often I'm just talking about an executive summary and I'm telling you it's the only thing anybody reads anyway. 95% of our, I get these emails from readers all the time, will you please tell the advisors to stop? please tell them to stop please tell them to stop but here's the thing I want to point out you're not I'm not talking to those fake financial advisors, and you and I aren't talking to them now we both know that I'm saying to to your audience so think of the doctor center like act like the doctor like you are there. I know we have a professional self esteem issue in our industry because of all the things you just said like we're not that we don't know what it means to be a professional. There's no typical standard of care. There's no single accepted mark, you know, other than certified financial planner getting really darn close, right? But there's still no single way, like people who come to us, you know, you can't look in the yellow pages and come up with real financial planner versus fake one. So we've got all those problems, but you, the people listening to this podcast, they don't have that problem. They are. So I'm telling, what I'm saying is if you act that way, I have found people accept it. It's all in our head. Look, I'm, I'm overstating this, but it's in our heads. And if we act that way, I had a doctor friend of mine. The reason I started doing this is, I don't know, it's probably 12 or 13 years ago, early on in my career, I had a, a doctor buddy of mine. I was showing him a proposal. So he had referred me, he was a client and he had referred me to a big, it was basically it was a profit sharing account and there was five doctors and it was like five or $6 million. And it was a, big deal for me then, it would still be a big deal for me now. And I was going to propose and and I I walked him through my my friend who'd referred to me, I walked him through the proposal. Just not this confidential specifics, but just the the educational part, that well, let's call it what it is, the sales and marketing part of the proposal. And he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, stop! 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 stop. What do you? He's like when you took. I had recently taken my daughter to the emergency room, and he was that. He was on duty. That's why I took her actually there. And he said, "When you brought your daughter in the other day, and you left, what did you leave with?" And I said, "Why? Well, what do you mean? I left like I left with my daughter." Thankfully, he's like, "Well, but no. What what else did you leave with?" I was like, "Um." He said, "You left with a piece of paper, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, it was a prescription." He said, "Could you read it?" And I was like, no, I, I couldn't even read it. He's like, what did you do with it? I said, well, I went to this scary place with a bunch of people with white coats on and the, called the pharmacy and I handed him the piece of paper that I couldn't read. And they made me sign some thing that, you know, if my daughter grew a third arm or whatever, like I didn't even read that. I just signed it. And I went home. He's like, what? And then you gave your daughter the medicine? I was like, yeah. He said, you didn't go home and do a second opinion? You didn't do any research? You didn't, yeah. and I was like, no. And he said, why? He said, well, because I, right, I felt thoroughly diagnosed. So to me, if I had one whiff of not being thoroughly diagnosed, thir- like thoroughly diagnosed, you better believe I would have been at home doing second opinion research before I filled the prescription. So what I'm suggesting is the one-page plan is possible if and only when we thoroughly, thoroughly diagnose.
1: And I mean, it's an interesting point about it, how much of this gets stuck in our head. We had a an advisor on a month or two ago, his name is, is Matthew Jarvis, and he's Built this incredible lifestyle practice for himself. You know, like a million dollars of revenue, like a fifty percent profit margin. He has one and a half staff members. He takes eighty three days of vacation a year. Like just this amazing business for himself. And one of the points that he made in it it was part of the reason he can serve his nearly one hundred and fifty clients effectively is like he's boiled down a lot of what he does to like. There's a little one-page retirement dashboard that tells them how they're doing and how they're whether their spending's on track. He basically gives them like a a one-page financial plan output of what they need to be doing. And it, and it just reinforces the point. Like, not only can you do it, like you can do it and be wildly successful at it. Uh, you know, for those who want to go back and list the whole episode, it's kitsis.com slash seven, because it was episode seven. Like, it just makes that point to me so saliently of of how much of this probably really is in our heads cuz there really are advisors out there that are producing you know just one page summary documents from a position of trust with clients and you know what they they just have wonderfully successful businesses like it didn't all fall apart because they stopped producing so much stuff for clients it actually just got simpler for everybody
2: i don't know if we want to wrap that conversation up but i just want to say like please I'm almost begging you. And here's why I'm begging you. Like, I care so much about the impact that real financial planners, advisors make in people's lives. I have traveled the world the last six or seven years, and all I hear about is the anxiety. Like, that's the word. Like, if I were to give you one word about how the public is feeling around money, the one word would be anxious. There's only one solution. And at least that I can find. I mean, there are other options, but for most people, there's one solution, and it's to have a real advisor in their lives. And what I'm telling you is what's standing between you and more of them is just please make it simple. Please just test it. Try it. Like, listen really carefully. You said something interesting from a position of trust. Okay, well, we could spend a long time talking about that. But whatever it is you do, to build trust, remember, trust isn't a function of the quantity of time you spent together. It's a function of the quality of the experience. I would suggest trust is a function of asking really good questions and then listening very carefully. Having somebody feel thoroughly diagnosed. So thoroughly diagnose. Make sure there's nothing you don't understand. Then, like in other words, care deeply about their problems, not your solutions. Forget your solutions for a minute. Spend a meeting or two just making sure you understand what it is they care about and their problems. Then see how simple you can make the solution. Just test it. Test it. Because I, we need to make a larger dent, especially the group you and I are talking to right now. Your audience needs to make a larger dent in the world because we're already making a massive impact. It just needs to be bigger.
1: I love what you said there as well. I Trust is not a function of the quantity of time, but the quality of the experience. It's a powerful statement.
2: I found that to be true. I, I could give you example after example of like seven minutes in being like, wow, we're in a completely different place.
1: So share with us your story a little of uh, like, how did you get started in the industry in the first place and wind down this fascinating path where you get to talk about financial planning on most of the continents on the on the planet?
2: I Feel bad telling the story again, but it's the old security guard story. So I'll make it short because I would assume at least a few of the people that are listening have heard it. I was in college. I was an undeclared major at the University of Utah. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. My wife had a degree in finance. She would graduated. I came home one day. She had opened the newspaper. I was looking at the in the help wanted section, and I said, "What are you doing?" Because she had a job and. She said to me, "I'm looking for a job," and I said, "You have one." And she said, "I know. I'm looking for you." And I said, "All right. What have, what have you found?" And, and she found what we both believe to this day. I don't have proof of this, but I, you know, she'll tell you the same story. She found what we both thought was a security guard job.
1: Oh, a job in
2: security. In security, a security job, right? So I, I went to apply, thinking it was like you know maybe one of those evening mall cops or something like this will be awesome because I can still go to work or sorry, school full time and work at the night in the night or whatever. And I go to apply and I get most of the way through the interview and they really haven't asked me anything about security, right? Kung fu, self-defense, nothing. And turns out it was what the ad said was securities. um, And I didn't at the time had no clue about the difference.
1: Which, which I suppose right there is the ultimate statement about our inability to provide simplicity over complexity, right? We couldn't say it was a stockbroker job. <laughs> we had to say it was securities, as though anybody outside the industry knows what securities means and thinks it's a security guard job.
2: Yeah, uh, I know. And this was ninety-five, right? Anyway, I, I, I ended up making it through the interview, which obviously tells you a bit about the applicant pool that day. Um, and I got the job and it was a like the first it was actually a temporary through a temporary agency working for Fidelity Investments, they had their largest. Well, I, th- I believe it was the largest. If it wasn't, it was like one of two very large call centers in the United States, was in Salt Lake City, where I was living at the time. And I, I got a temporary job. And then they eventually hired their first part time team out of that group, which was awesome. So I got in totally by mistake. And I remember thinking, in the first two weeks in training, you know, we were t- training to get our licenses so we could answer questions on the phone on the sort of trading line. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, this isn't a security guard job. It's a math job. So I was like, this is easy, like spreadsheets, numbers, everything makes sense. It's all rational, right? And then shortly after that, two months after that, Amazon, or not Amazon, um, Netscape went public and the call volume was so high they pulled us out of training and threw us on the trading floor. And I remember that day, I, I remember Walking out of the training room, they were like, ah, we need all of you on the phones, everybody to come down here. I remember like leaving that room where everything made sense, right? Two plus two equaled four. Every single time, spreadsheets, calculators, the whole thing. And this is where the sort of behavioral piece started. I didn't make the connection at the time, but I remember walking onto the trading floor and being like, oh my gosh, like as we say in the States, right? You're not in Kansas anymore. Everything, nothing made sense there. <laughs> I mean,
1: it was like literally the transition from, you know, First, we're going to teach you the theory of how securities markets work and the nature of the job. And then we're going to put you on a trading floor and you can see when things actually go haywire in the real world.
2: Totally. Like we're going to teach you how it should work and then we're going to show you how none of it works. And I remember being, so I got in by accident and I stayed quite on purpose because of that experience. Actually, it was really sort of like this fascination. I remember just sitting there going, what is going on? And of course that you can see the threads of that through my career sense just like it's all of this behavior stuff fascinated me it wasn't the I could care less about that I mean I I care but I you know it's like the spreadsheets don't interest me at all compared to the behavior so that's how I got in the industry and I left there side story they asked me like they didn't ask me without asking me they changed my shift to a Sunday I don't work on Sundays so I said I can I please I'll work graveyards I'll do anything you want but I can't these Sundays, they said, sorry, too bad. And so I left, not knowing what I would do. Ended up at a job with Prudential Securities back then, um, working for a big team there, a really successful team in Salt Lake. I learned a ton from there. And then, of course, irony of all ironies, I had the professional self-esteem issue. It was like my mom, my grandma wanted me to be an attorney. I'm letting them all down. I know, I'll go work for the most prestigious firm in the world, which will go unnamed, but has a bullet symbol is owned by a bank.
1: Right, if you're going to be a financial advisor and you want to make your family proud, right, like go go for a major household name that everybody knows.
2: That's exactly right. So I, I went to work there, and then you know one thing led to another, and I started my own firm in, I want to say, 2004, without looking at the dates. But yeah, I think it was 2004. Left and started my own RIA firm about then. Ran that for a while until I sold it to Buckingham Asset Management, worked for them for a, a couple of years, a couple of really good years actually. Recently with my move to New Zealand, decided to part ways with them sort of mutually. Now, I so I don't have a firm anymore. I'm doing, you know, I keep my feet in the financial planning world because I'm helping a number of family and friends sort of translate what their planners are saying to them. And then somewhere along the lines about seven years ago, I started writing this column for the new york times so it's been a weekly thing so that's that's kind of the snapshot version
1: so talk to me about just like just this whole behavior gap thing you started at fidelity and you went to prudential and you went to the firm that shall not be named and then ultimately you went out to to start your own raa and you were starting to take in some of this perspective around our behavior you know starting on on watching people on the trading floor when netscape IPO'd. When did Behavior Gap begin? Like, when did Carl Richards, the Behavior Gap guy, begin? How did that come about?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, like, it officially... And and I want to make something clear about this name, just so it's it's on the record. I kept... Well, first of all, I'll tell you the story real quickly. I kept having this repeated problem, right? I was at... This big brokerage firm, I had the best training in the industry, and I wanted to figure out what my job was. So I kept asking, and everybody kept telling me it was to find the best investment. Like That was my job. Go find the best investment. And to, back then, and, and still probably today, that meant finding like the best manager, right? Either mutual fund or... I was dealing with a lot of institutions back then. So it was like institutional separate accounts, right? So I went and got my SEMA designation, which I have since... Regrettably, I should say, let lapse because I just didn't want to keep up with the continuing ad. But I went and got my SEMA designation and I learned all that sort of manager search and selection process. We built a really detailed spreadsheet, you know, to do manager search and selection. And then I kept having this repeated problem, which I know, and I've, I've told this story all over the world and everybody sort of chuckles because they all have, we all have the same problem because it's a human problem. Just about the time I would identify kind of the best investment As soon as I would commit my money or clients' money to it, it was like 12 to 18 months later, it would become the not so best investment. And our methodology. You
1: just got to pick better, man. I know,
2: I know. So, right, I, I, after, long story short, after a couple cycles of that, I'd figured out I'd created a very disciplined, rigorous approach to buying high and selling low and trying to charge people money for it. And I got really frustrated with that. It was like, look, I have the best training. I'm not a, Dumb guy, right? Like, and if I can't do my job, then I gotta get out of the industry. And I was, I was really like at the point where I was gonna leave. And then I, I stumbled upon much of that research, and it was probably Dalbar's research, which let's not even go there in terms of talking about the numbers. I I don't agree with the number, but you know, they have this number on there that of just comparing the average investment to the average investor. And at that point, nobody had really labeled that gap. Nobody, at least that I was aware of. And I was showing, I was drawing that on the whiteboard. Like that, finding that information changed my life. Now Morningstar, since...
1: Like you were literally is part of client conversations drawing on a on a whiteboard even at the time like hey i my value here is uh, let me draw this for you here's what markets do and here's what investors do and i'm going to help you
2: That's exactly right try explaining that without a whiteboard right like so i would I, I tried like i would explain it and i remember i was in a meeting and i had clients just sort of staring at me blankly. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm really good at this. Like I'm a good communicator. I know how to make things simple and they still weren't getting it. And out of total pragmatic need or an act of desperation. I was like, no, like this. And I jumped up and drew, and I just drew a bar chart and the one bar said average investment. And then I drew a circle above the bar chart. And I said, I know you think that's my job to find that circle. We call it alpha, right? I know you think that's my job. And so it turns out it's not my job because look, here's what actually happens. We underperform. And I drew a smaller bar and I wrote average investor. I drew a label the gap. And initially, this is kind of funny. I haven't really told this story in public, but initially I wrote emotional gap. We were messing around with that for a while. I was like, it's the emotional gap. We do it because of emotions. And then I realized, no, it's, it's actually because of behavior. Wrote Behavior Gap. And then this is the last thing I want to just mention about that is that was the early iteration of Behavior Gap. And then I, I got the name, and I'm only mentioning this because it's important people know why. I, I trademarked the name, the Behavior Gap. And I want to be really clear to this audience. The only reason I trademarked it was so that nobody could tell me I couldn't use it. I don't care if anybody else uses. It. I don't care if you use it. I don't care if the people who are doing decent work at Betterment Dan Egan uses it. I don't you know like I don't care. Just I only did it so that nobody could tell us. Right. I didn't want the big bad enemy trademarking it, telling us we couldn't use it.
1: So truly, I mean that label around the behavior gap, like that was you. I mean obviously the Dow Bar have been doing their research for a while, but like calling it that, I mean that that was you and you literally owned the trademark on it.
2: That is correct. I mean, obviously, other people have written long before me. About the phenomenon. Yeah, or they even called it like poor investor results are due to behavior like that. None of that's new. And most of my work is, you know, like, what do people say that plagiarism is when you steal from one source, when you steal from multiple sources, it's called research. You know, like to a large degree, I feel like we're all standing on the shoulders of giants that came before us. So anyway, that's where it started. But now I think of the behavior gap as any gap between behavior that we know we should be doing and what we're actually doing. The knowing doing gap.
1: The, no, I like that. The know, the the knowing doing gap.
2: Yeah, and that's based on some academic work that's been done by somebody. And I, if I had the source here, I'd cite it. But the knowing doing gap is how I think of it now.
1: How did it evolve from – I mean, it's one thing to say like, hey, in a moment of desperation of clients not getting the behavior gap, you're like, let me just draw it for you on a whiteboard and made your famous bar chart and illustrated the point. So when or how did this turn into a business, like a thing, right? I mean, it's behavior gap as a label is out there in the the general lexicon now. You've had a substantial business that you grew off of doing behavior gap things of – speaking and writing and artwork and the rest. But like, how did it turn from just something you did with a client into a business and a thing that started hitting the industry more broadly?
2: Yeah. Can I just give some disclaimers first? Sure. So I, I, I want to make a point that I'm, I'm working really hard on right now with a sort of a future project in mind. It's not doing it disservice to say it was an accident, but I, I want to, I think it's important for people to understand that there was no master plan. Like, how could you have made a master plan? A master plan for this. Yeah, how could I have said, okay, I'm going to live in Park City, Utah, and eventually I'm going to move to New Zealand, but while I'm in Park City, Utah, or at the time, Las Vegas, yeah, how could I have said, while living in a small suburb of Las Vegas, Nevada, and drawing with a Sharpie on cardstock and scanning it in using a Fujitsu scanner, I'm going to get these into the New York Times. So the only reason I mention that is because I think we all think, "Oh, I could never do that," and then we realize that neither could I, right? Like, I, so, so playing in traffic. So it was quite by accident, right? I, I here's what happened. I, I drew it on the whiteboard, and then I had a client literally say to me, "Hey, could you put that on a piece of paper so I can take it home and show it to my spouse when I get home." And I thought, yeah, sure. And I drew it on a piece of paper. I was I was embarrassed. I was like, ah, really? Like, are you sure? And they were like, yeah. And they like sort of drug it out of me. I was like, sure. And then a couple weeks later, I had a similar experience, but the client called afterwards and said, hey, or emailed me, one of the two, and said, hey, that thing you drew, I'm tr- I've been trying to explain it to my spouse, and I can't. Could you just draw it real quickly and scan it and email it to me? And so when I saw it in electronic form, I thought, hey... I I could I guess I could just sort of write that experience up and share it and I did and I started this little website called BehaviorGap.com. dot com and I started doing that and nobody was reading it like my mom and my sister and I th- I'm pretty sure my I'm pretty sure my sister was
1: how every blog starts like you you just hang your digital shingle and hope someday someone shows up.
2: Yeah. And that went on for years, right? Like it was just crickets. I remember going home multiple times. Like the behavior gap as a kind of idea is something I tried to quit multiple times. Like I was addicted to it. I couldn't not do it. It was a compulsion. I couldn't not not do it. It was just not an option. So, but I tried because here I was growing a big business or at least what could have been a very big business at a big brokerage firm. I could have had all the money I needed, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, I was doing the stupid thing with Sharpies on the side. And so I kept doing it. And then, you know, pretty, you know, a couple years of just total silence. And then, you know, like doing some of the social media stuff where you're like emailing it to people and whatever. And it caught the attention of, I think early on, it was probably Marion Asnes when she was at Financial Planning Magazine.
1: I was gonna say, shout out to Marion Asnes. The first time I remember hearing about your stuff was through Marion. I don't remember when that was, like ten years ago or so, like maybe oh six, oh six, oh seven, something like that. And yeah, she's yeah, you because know, I, I think it was like I was doing some writing for Financial Planning Magazine back then with Marion, and and I mean, I think it came down to something like I I had an article that I'd submitted, and and I think like she said she's not going to run it because she came across this guy out west that's doing this cool thing about beha- people's behavior gap and she's going to run a story about what he's doing and like I think I, I think my article got bumped for for her writing about what you were working on no no offense taken no no ill will at all but that was the first time it hit my radar screen that she was talking like yeah there's this co- a cool guy out west that like is writing about behavior gap and he does these sketches and like they're getting some attention and I want to and I don't want to cover it. So, you know, kudos to Marion Asnes. She's, uh, now I think doing marketing consulting work for advisors and, and B2B businesses for advisors, but she was editor of financial planning magazine at the time and was the early trend spotter that saw you on the rise.
2: Well, yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, all I know is that even hearing her name makes me slightly like, it's just so cool when certain people show up and you know, for whatever reason, and so grateful for somebody like Marian. like she changed my life and she actually changed my life. And and to have somebody recognize something that you don't see as necessarily valuable, which if we have time, we'll talk a little bit about that feeling and to believe in you is so awesome. And then, you know, I wrote something for Financial Planning Magazine and it got a little attention and then, but not, you know, a Financial Planning Magazine, as big of an impact as it makes, it's, we're still talking about a pretty specific niche trade journal And so for it to go from there to this email that I got from Ron Lieber at the New York Times, which I I actually show in the presentation when I talk about this because nobody believes me, but the email essentially is just like, hey, I love these. Will you do them for us? And I was like. I knew enough from my I always joke that I knew enough my from my security guard background to, to to say yes and figure things out later, right? I said
1: When the New York Times calls and says like, so we'd like you to start writing for us about the stuff that you're doing. Yeah, I guess that's just one of those like, I'm gonna say yes and figure this out later. <laughs> like that email doesn't come very often. <laughs>
2: No, it was it was crazy. And I, I remember saying, like, what does it look like, right? So we did this it started out as just he just wanted to do this week thing in the your money section. They had this thing called Ask an Expert and they wanted me to take like a week of questions and so I I did that and at the end of the week I was like, Hey, should we keep doing this? And I remember Ron said, I can remember where I was parked actually in the car. Ron said, Do you how often would you like to do it? And I said, Well, why don't we just try once a week? And I remember he said don't you think you'll run out of material? And I said, I don't know. Let's give it a shot, right? And so, seven years later, every week except for I just recently missed a, a month. With anyway, my wife, my wife fell off a big mountain. She's fine now, but it, it was the first time I'd missed any time with the time. So seven years, and there's no sign of us, you know, running out of material. Because if I don't have anything from the public, I just use stuff for my own life, <laughs> right? So, so anyway, that that's kind of how that all. And the book, the book's similar. I, I, I mean, I, it's embarrassing because I, I, I didn't have much to do with it. Again, like there's a person that showed up in my life at a time, just sort of a perfect time. Ron Lieber changed my life. And then I had a similar experience with the book. Ch- you know, the right person, my, my agent actually, you know, Christy showed up and it's completely altered the course of my entire life. So anyway, that's kind of how it all happened.
1: I think there's an interesting phenomenon there, though, that like from the sort of success building story, I mean, there are all these sayings out there like luck favors the prepared and "you when opportunity knocks, do you answer the door? But I I, I mean, I think there's something about those stories that you've told to me that really are instructive, that you were just doing a thing that you had a passion around. It wasn't built in the sense of like, Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to start doing my behavior gap drawings and then I'm going to pitch the New York Times and then I'm going to pitch for a book deal. And then I'm going to try to become a, a speaker. Like there wasn't this master plan that you were executing towards. It was simply, I'm doing something that I believe in and have a lot of passion about that has some value for some other people. It's, it's got to be valuable in the first place, but you know, I'm producing something of value and I'm just making sure that when, when opportunity actually knocks, I do answer the door. I know plenty of advisors out there that I think have maybe not had identical situations, but like they, they have similar ones and they don't answer the door when opportunity knocks. You know, it's like, Hey, could you do a weekly column for us? Like, Oh, well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to produce enough stuff. Like, I, I guess maybe just, you know, have me once every couple months. Uh, Cause I, I think I can do that. And it's like, great. You just talked yourself out of a weekly column in the New York Times. <laughs> by by doubting yourself and not taking advantage of an opportunity when it came to you. And like those kinds of phenomena where an opportunity knocks, but we hear the work and the and the fear and the, well, oh, I don't even know if I want to do this because it would suck if it didn't work out, that like we fail to actually take advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. Whereas you seem to have been much more effective at just making sure, like, hey, when Marion called, like you took the call and you did the thing, and then that led to Ron Lieber contacting you, and you took the email and you did the thing and and like just parlaying the opportunities that can come actually can really propel a business incredibly far when you're when you're open and ready to, for them in the first place
2: yeah i have to I have to tell you I'm having this really interesting feeling right now of just being i don't know what the right word is, I want to say I'm terribly uncomfortable with. I'm terribly uncomfortable with. I actually a year or two, probably more like three years ago, was I I wouldn't even talk about this because I didn't want anybody to ever be like, you know. I mean, I'm uncomfortable. Like we're all uncomfortable talking about ourselves and. And then I had this experience. It was probably, it was actually a long, longer. I got asked to share this story in my hometown, Park City, Utah. Like I, I grew up there and we lived back, we had moved back home and my friends and, and the place that got, I got asked to share it was at an art center where I took my eighth grade. I took, I took a pottery class there when I was eight, right? Like, like there's all this connection and my family was there. There was 120 people there, all my friends from high school. And and they asked me to share this exact story I'm sharing with you. And I remember thinking the comparison I can make it to, and I use this as the disclaimer before I talked about it, because I was so uncomfortable with the idea of like, Hey, look what I've done. Cause I don't know that I can take much credit for it. To be honest, like I just don't feel like I can take the credit for much of what's gone other than maybe what you just talked about, which was just sort of like, Oh, when somebody hits you in the back of the head with a two by four, maybe you should go that direction. Like, and, and it took almost that much, right? Like, it wasn't like a, I'm not good at spotting a trend. I'm not good at like, but anyway, I remember thinking of like, remember when we were little kids? I, I remember where I grew up. We had little BMX bikes and, and, uh, we would build like, a, you know, a little jump with like a milk crate and a two by eight. And I remember going off of it and then like skidding, right? Like, like it, I'm talking like 12 years old or whatever, skidding in front of your parents and being like, did you see that?
1: Yeah. I've still got a scar on my elbow. Cause I was not very good at that. Went over the handlebars.
2: They didn't make blue shirts to wear while you did it. That's the problem. Like you needed a blue button down shirt. Yeah. 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 That, and it wasn't blue, but that's the context in which I'm comfortable talking about this. It's just like, Hey, There's this kind of this interesting thing that's happened to me. I don't really know what to make of it. But I do know that when you were talking about answering the email and that there's a lot of people who don't do it, I could feel how close I was to not doing it. And I'm telling you the fear, the paralyzing fear behind this work. Like it's as close to like, so what Seth Godin likes to refer to it. I I love his, when he says, here I made this thing. Here I made this. I hope you like it. Like I'm just addicted to that feeling. Here I made this. I hope you like it. Like I don't know if you will. And it. And he also likes to say it might not work. And and almost everything I've ever done. There's a deep sense of that. Like this may not work. And I've actually learned to recognize that as a good feeling. It used to be almost paralyzing. Almost, and I almost has an asterisk by it. Almost paralyzing. And for most of us, it is paralyzing. And all I'm suggesting that if there's any lesson in this story for anybody, it's just like, try the thing. That thing that you're scared of, right? Just just try it, put it out there for the world, see if they like it, right? If they don't like it, try it again. You know, like just, so anyway, I, it's hard for me to talk about it.
1: Is the fear, is it a fear of failure? I mean, is that what it comes back to? Like just, it's scary to produce this thing and put it out there, Particularly and especially when you're doing things that are going to go out to the public domain because of like just the, the mortifying fear of what if this doesn't work out and everybody's going to see it not work
2: out. It's absolutely like that's a genetic trait. Like we the, – the worst thing that could have possibly happened to you is to be rejected by your tribe, right? Like you're going to die and starve alone in the wilderness under a rock right? Like, that's... So, yes, that absolutely, the fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of laughter, like, people are going to look at it and judge it. Like, dude, I write on a piece of cardstock with a Sharpie. Like, what do you mean it's going to be in an art show? Like, so that fear is super duper real.
1: And then I guess for you, and then it it amplified, right? Because, I mean, first it was the drawings and the early articles, which went to Mary Nazus and financial planning, which went to... New York Times and writing, and then you started getting asked to speak about it, right?
2: Yeah. And we, gotta, we should make quick disclaimer about this, right? Like I, I've started talking about this feeling a lot lately. In fact, my next book is called Do It Anyway, and it's on the imposter syndrome. And what's really interesting is people come up after. It was by mistake. I was just doing it like the last seven minutes of a keynote presentation. I would say like, hey, by the way, I'm going to warn you, like you're going to start doing new things. You're going to feel this feeling. Let me tell you what it's called because it's coming and just do it anyway, right? And people would come up afterwards and go, oh man, if you feel that, then it was really helpful to know that if you still feel that and all I want, like you don't start out. No, I, I had little, I had little, like at first it was the fear that my fan, like the three people who are reading my blog, like that fear is just as real. As the fear I'm feeling now, when, you know, t- today, the story goes up today in the New York Times about my wife's accident and and the regrets I have about not spending more time with her. I mean, again, she's fine. I uh, Luckily, I get a chance, a second chance, <laughs> another chance, right? But a couple, I don't know what the numbers are, but a lot of people are going to read that. The fear feels no different than it did when there was three people reading my blog. So luckily, we get a chance to grow incrementally with that fear. So yes, yeah, speaking, same, same thing. 12 people to, I think the biggest group was in South Africa and there was 2,500 people. 2,500
1: people. Can I ask, what do you paid to go to another continent to speak for 2,500 people? Like what do, what do events pay for things like that?
2: I'm so excited that you asked that question so we can talk about this feeling we're both having right now. Did you really just ask me when I get paid to speak?
1: Yeah. People are always fascinated by numbers, right? I mean, money... Money is the last great taboo. Are you expecting an actual answer? Like, you want me to give it, or are you expecting me to go? You know, I,
2: I get paid pretty well. If
1: you're willing to give an actual answer, I think people will be fascinated to you know, like, what I mean. What does a speaking career look like at that size and scale?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. But what's more interesting is this experience right now. Isn't it fascinating that two people who get paid pretty well and are pretty well known. I mean, at least you're really well known among the financial advisor world. Like, like to talk about money—that's like what our jobs are. Like, I play the guy in in the newspaper that talks about money. You know, like you play the guy all over the world that talk. Like, and there's this feeling right now of like, did you really just ask me? So it's funny because I get asked after speaking engagements, people will come up and go, "Hey, we'd like to have you at our event. What's your fee?" And I'm like, email my agent. And I even sometimes, for a period there, for like six months, I actually told my agent I didn't want to know. I said, I don't I don't want to know. So I can honestly say I don't know. So let me tell you the story. <laughs> you
1: literally, you, you wanted your agent to just book you for whatever number he could get and wire you the money but don't tell
2: you what it costs until… <laughs> Unmarked bills under a bridge. Yeah, no, I didn't want to know because the pressure was so great when I knew. Like, okay, so let me tell you the story. I write a book, book comes out, you know, those early speak engagements, it was like, whatever anybody will pay. Right. And we know in the industry, that's, that's just often that's like,
1: like someone's going to pay my plane fare to fly somewhere and send, have me speak. Like,
2: yeah. get Free entrance to the conference. Right. Like, so all that stuff. And that's incredibly flattering and amazing. And you're like, whoa, some actually the fact that anybody would even want me to speak was, is still just like amazing. So anyway, I write this book. I get my, Agent, my agent says to me, "I said, well, what should I charge for speaking?" And I, I really believe fee consistency is super important in speaking because I don't think just because one person asked for a discount, they deserve one. Because the nice person who didn't ask for one doesn't deserve one, right? So, so we've just really consistent. And she said, "Let's start." And this, I'm going to tell this story only because I want to shock people into thinking maybe a little differently. It's had that impact on me. She. She said, "Let's start low so that people don't have to think much about it. So let's just start with ten thousand for a keynote.
1: So, like, as a low starting point, let's just set a threshold where you're going to get paid ten thousand dollars an hour.
2: Yeah, and I, I was like, uh, 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 it took me like it took me like thirty seconds to say anything. She's like, yeah, like she her belief was that eighty percent of the people should say no that we should if we're if we priced it right it's you know eighty percent of the inquiries you get." So I've done, so now that number, this is how I normally say it, if somebody really wants the answer, I'm like, if you were to email my agent, here's the reply you would get. And so that number is, I'm trying to think carefully about how to say this, there is some variation based on travel, on the location, but that number is between 20, 20 25 and 30,000, 25 and 35,000. I don't even know, what do you do with that? Please, please, people don't, like, all the people that are listening, please don't hate me. Like, I I don't know, I don't know how, how do I, how, and this is an interesting thing, like, as an advisor. How do you,
1: how do you justify anyone paying you $30,000 to show up for an hour? I mean, the bad news is, you have to show up, so there's some travel It takes a little bit more than literally just the hour, but yet, you know, good old capitalism, right, like, People oh, if it takes a month. This. I think it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but like people pay this, right? It's a fast I and mean, that's the thing.
2: It's a fascinating thing and and I think you have to remember one of the stories I tell myself and I believe it to be true. Or I wouldn't tell myself, but I admit openly that it might be a story is that it wasn't, right? It's not an hour. It's 20 years. And and having that experience and and but I, but whatever, but I do also I so I don't know what to do with that. And I think let's just compare it to some a feeling I remember having. I remember and I'm sure many of your listeners can relate. I remember thinking one day when and I'm not trying to distract you. I, I remember I had a big client who was a it was an institutional client and based on the, the amount they had after a super you know aggressive competitive pricing on their account, it was a you know it was an an, a, an asset under management. It was a percentage fee, but the percentage was really really low because of the size. But the number was something like a hundred thousand a year, because right? it was a huge account. And so even after being I was the lowest price. Like I won because I was the lowest price, right? Which is not a technique I suggest. But but either way, I'm just trying to emphasize I wasn't ripping this person off.
1: Yeah, like you were the dirt cheap bargain price of I'll do this work for you. It's just a hundred thousand dollars.
2: Yeah, and I remember I went to four corporate, or sorry, quarterly meetings. I remember doing the math one day. I was like, okay, it probably takes me an hour to prepare. Let's just say it's two hours. Times four is eight hours, plus the four hour long meetings is 12 hours. And then I was like, yeah, and there's probably an hour of cleanup afterwards, like to dos and getting it to the staff and all that stuff. So, you know, let's just throw in another A. So now we're at 16 hours. You know, and then I was like, okay, during the year I may make a phone call or two. So I mean I got it up to like twenty hours. That's five thousand dollars an hour.
1: Right. So we're down to five grand an hour. And you were the lowball. And you were the lowball deal.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I we've all worked through those numbers in our heads, like, why do we deserve that? And I have just decided like it's not my job to now I mean it's different in terms of pricing structure. We could talk about retainers and hourly and all that stuff. And I I think I, much
1: of it boils down to the same thing, right? I mean just There's a phenomenon that happens for, for all of us with advisors. I think as the, as the business grows, right? Like early on, you're just, you're working with anyone you can because, you know, if you can fog a mirror, you're a prospect while we're trying to get revenue going. And then at some point you get a critical mass and like you're, you're doing okay. And then, you know, at some point you start getting your first couple of big clients. And, and I, I feel like almost every advisor I know, like has this. Pause moment. At some point, you're like, so I've been doing all this work for all these people, and they pay me a couple hundred a couple hundred dollars a year, or a thousand dollars a year, or two thousand dollars a year, or three thousand dollars a year because I got like a three hundred thousand dollar rollover at one percent. And then suddenly, someone shows up with three million dollars and is really excited to work with you, and and you're like, oh oh my god, at my fee schedule, like most of my clients pay me three grand a year. You're going to pay me thirty thousand dollars a year, and I'm not even sure you're that much more complex, right? Like I you got a larger portfolio, there's maybe a little more things going on. But like, I'm pretty sure you're not 10x complexity for 10x the assets, and I'm going to be charging you 10x the fee. And I mean, I almost feel like for some of us, like, that's part of why we see people sort of like, we aggressively discount ourselves. We start introducing sharp breakpoints. I know advisors that cap their fees when like, from any rational business perspective, like, there's pretty much no good business case to cap your fees. Like people want to pay more, let them pay more. It's, 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 it's revenue for your business. I feel like this phenomenon goes on that when, when the dollars start getting bigger, there's some crossover point where like you go from, all right, I was going to get paid a couple thousand dollars from this client, but I'm going to work like 20, 30 hours for this client. So if I really break down my time, like maybe I'm making a hundred dollars an hour, a hundred and fifty dollars an hour, which is a healthy professional wage, but like not not outlandish relative to what professionals get paid in a lot of industries. But at some point, the clients get get bigger and the dollar amounts get bigger. And I think it starts creating this anxiety at some point. You're like, don't <laughs> – it's like, don't you know who I am? Like, I appreciate you think my services are valuable, but like, I'm not that special.
2: Yeah, I – look, it's really important we all – build and that's why I was very clear to point out like the story I've told myself about this and we all build these stories. But I finally, I think the healthiest thing to do is simply to say, at least for me, I don't know that it applies directly. I think it applies the same as when I was an advisor, which is, it's not your job.
1: It's not your job to rationalize your pricing or like, you like do. validate. Yeah, your pricing. you do.
2: Now, obviously you have to deliver the goods. Like I, Care where somebody pays me a thousand dollars. Actually, I don't even care if somebody pays me nothing. But you know, five hundred people are going to show up and spend an hour of their time to listen. Like that's amazing. Like that attention's enough pressure. You know what I mean? Like, like, but I, but I do. Like, we can circle back to imagine. All I'm trying to demonstrate is that it's no different than the pressure that we all feel. Which you walk into. So I'm in. Cape Town, South Africa, and I do like three or four events and there. Are, you know, a couple hundred people, and those are scary, and I get scared before them, and I still get scared before every single one. And I still, I, I've started, I've started actually recording it. I'm going to release these at some point, but I record in the green room, like the the room backstage that you sit in as a speaker. Like I, I can never sit in there. I always just walk around backstage. I make the staff nervous because I climb up ladders, and but I started recording like how I'm feeling. And it's always the same. Just like, I can't believe I'm about to do this. Do people know who I am? Like, I'm just a little kid from Park City, Utah, man. I like, I'm from the Hills. I use a Sharpie. Like, like, you know, I was having the same feeling in South Africa, a couple hundred people. And then I show up at this event in Johannesburg. And I, I asked if I could walk to the thing and they had this person that followed me around. Um, She was really funny. Her name was Daniela. She was awesome. Anyway, that's a, a whole separate story. She, but she was always following me around. Apparently, for safety reasons, but I was always like sneaking off like I try to sneak out the door and she'd get "Ah, ah she'd chase me,
1: you're ditching your security yeah point. exactly
2: Excellent. so i walk I walk to this event and I get close and I start to notice people out on the corners holding signs saying "Cara Richard's event with arrows, and I'm like. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what, what? You have sign pointers. Yeah, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Something's gone. No, what? What? And then I get, I get there, and there's these escalators and all. That, and there's like, it's like, feels a little bit like the airport. Like there's people flowing in, and this isn't me, by the way. Like they, didn't, I'm in South Africa. They didn't know the name. Like the the firm that I did this for did a fantastic job of getting their clients there, and they they have a deep sense of trust over there, and they hold an event. People come, so it wasn't me, but i I had to deliver the goods, and I remember walking in to do the sound check, and everybody was outside of a like cocktail huge thing and, and there was nobody in the thing and there's twenty five hundred seats in this sort of stadium seating style, and I was down on the stage and I remember walking out from the backstage onto the stage and just being like <gasps> like i I actually had to turn around and think,
0: Oh my gosh
2: like i got I'm getting paid something.' In 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 this case, for this series of events, I was getting paid more than I thought I'd ever make in a year when I was in high school. And then there's going to be 2,500 people there. And, and so that we're going all the way back to your original question, which was like that fear is paralyzing for most of us. And I'm just begging you because the reason we have to get over that fear is because people need so desperately what you do and they don't know where to find you because you're like a secret, right? Like a secret society. Nobody knows where to find you. And so the only way for them to know where to find you is for you to start talking a bit, right? You to start sharing your story. Say to the world, like Seth says, right? Say to the world, here, I, I made this thing. I hope you like it. So this whole
1: phenomenon of where we get some success in our business and start having anxiety over our own worth. So you used a label for it a couple of minutes ago of imposter syndrome talk about like is that a researched thing or like are you are you dubbing imposter syndrome the way that you dubbed behavior gap and we're 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 all going to say that in a in a couple of years as well
2: no i was a job i got when i worked when i went to work for for bam actually in st louis they put you through this kind of psychological kind of series of tests if you will it's it's like executive coaching is what it was it was really Initially, you're like, I don't want to do this. And then when you understand what it is, I was like, wow, this is awesome. Like somebody else will pay for my professional development like this. So I was really grateful for it. And I was talking to, I can't remember her name. I need to find her name. She's like a PhD executive coach. And I was telling her about that feeling. I was like, I really struggle with this. And she goes, and I didn't know the name. She said, you know, it has a name, Carl. I was like, what? What do you mean it? It. And name, like, what, what, what is it? First of all, she's like, that feeling has a name. And she told me, she's like, it's called the imposter syndrome. And I was like, oh, you know, like, really, honestly, like, oh, my gosh, really? That's perfect. Is that like,
1: we feel like we're, I mean, does it you feel like you're an imposter? Like, don't you know who I am? And why you really shouldn't be paying me $5,000 an hour to sit on your investment committee for a couple hours a year?
2: That's exactly right. Like, don't you know who I am? Like, I, uh, you, if you saw my own, I haven't balanced my own checkbook in two months, and you're asking me for financial advice, right? Like, don't you know who I am? Like, I just argued with my wife about money, and you're asking me to help you with your family? Like, so all of those feelings, it's feelings of like, who gave you permission to do this? Like, somebody's going to bust in the door. I feel like it may happen this morning, even like somebody's going to bust in the door and look and go, what, what, where's your license? Who told you you? Like, I feel that way every week with The New York Times, every single week. Like, the gig is up. Sorry. So, yeah, that we're a fraud. And we all feel it. And it's a pretty well-researched feeling. There's some argument over whether it should be called a a syndrome. I'm using that word because I think it's just best. It resonates. People have called it imposterism or imposter phenomenon.
1: No, no, I feel better when I've got a syndrome.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: (laughs) I want to call this a syndrome like my diseases feel better when I name them
2: so yes. <laughs> yeah 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 and uh, it's and here's an example it's anecdotal I can't I can find the first place that it was written but I can't I've got some editorial standards for the newspaper I write for it requires a little bit more than this but I couldn't I couldn't actually verify the source but the anecdotal story and I, and I believe this to be true I mean maybe not true of this specific example but generally true is that if you go into the incoming class of Stanford MBAs, right? Like most competitive business school in the world. And the incoming class, these are people who are accepted. They're all sitting in a room and you say to them, how many of you, like close your eyes so you can't see anybody else's answers. How many of you feel like you're the only mistake that the admissions committee made that 70% of the hands will go up? Yeah, and there is some good that's, data. That's
1: like the, that's the bad version of everybody's above average, right? Like every everybody's below average in in hyper competitive environments.
2: Yeah, and so what's interesting about the imposter syndrome is there's some pretty good evidence that shows that it's actually more common among high achievers. So it's not unusual for you to feel that way. If you feel that way, you know it's 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 actually normal.
1: When I almost feel like. If you have a certain level of success and, and the dollar amounts start getting big, like, I feel like you hit a crossroads where, you know, the dollars for your time start getting so big that this imposter syndrome feeling starts, starts looming up inside. And when it does, like, I feel like you can go one of two directions. So option A, like, it's this fork in the road. So the fork to the left is kind of the self-deprecating, like, I need to rationalize this and try to validate myself a little bit more. So, like, it's not the hour; it's also the day that I travel, and it's it's not the just the work for the client. Is the twenty years I spent learning to be an excellent financial advisor to validate how much I'm going to get paid incrementally for the next client? Right, like we start trying to rationalize it and 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 adjust the number. And then I there are a few people that go the other fork in the road. So if imposter syndrome sort of cues up this question. Don't you know who I am? Like that you're paying me this much money, right? There's the version that says, don't, like, don't you know who I am? Cause it's the self deprecating style. And then there's the, the one that I think we see most in celebrity status. Like there's the, don't you know who I am? Right. Like the, the, like, I'm so uncomfortable with the imposter syndrome that I validated it by convincing myself that I, I like, I really am worth this much money. And if I'm worth $5,000 an hour when I get up on like to – in that investment committee, I'm worth $5,000 an hour in everything that I do. And then you start being really mean and unpleasant to other people, every one of whom you you see is like less valuable than yourself, right? But it to me, it's the opposite end of the same spectrum that when you get to that moment of starting to feel like, I can't believe how much money they're paying me for this. Don't you know who I am? Like you can remain humble or you can go to the other end of the extreme. It's actually really hard to remain in the middle,
2: yeah, well, just so you know, there's a third option, and that's you let it crush you, and you end up with the, you know, we we think of artists this way, right? Like alcoholic, you know, like the pressure just crushes you, but there's another version of that crushing pressure. It's just you do nothing. You just stay quiet. You don't do it. And that's what you referred to earlier, right? Right. That's the, I'm, I just don't want to open the door when the opportunity knocks. Yeah, but I, yeah, I don't, I mean, look, I don't, I, I don't know where I fit on that spectrum. I would hope that I fit on the And where I'm like, look, I'm just flattered to be in a position where somebody cares. And I hope in some small way I can make an impact. And I feel pretty confident. I mean, it's hard for me to say this, but I I look, based on the response I get at speaking engagements, I'm not really worried about whether or not this is going to be valuable relative to the other speakers they have. I'm not really worried necessarily about that. Like, I will deliver the goods. That doesn't make me any less scared. Right before I do it. And it doesn't make me any less scared till about five minutes in where I'm like, oh, oh yeah, that's right. I felt this way before. I think I'm just going to do my thing. Here's the reason the imposter syndrome shows up. Look, and I don't, you can take us off the subject anytime you want, but one reason I think it shows up is because as we get more and more experience with something. So there's two things going on you identified one, the air beneath you, it gets further and further from the ground, right? Like as the as the consequences as, as the amount you're getting paid and the impact you're having, the the size of the audience, all of that stuff as it grows, if you think of it as a graph, right? It's further from the ground. So you have further to fall. So that 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 increases the feeling of imposterism, which is why it's so common among high achieving Uh, anybody is, you know, you could think of a neurosurgeon, right? Like the the first time they go to operate on an eight-year-old, you know, and they're staring the parents in the eye saying, Hey, it's going to be okay. And they shut the door and walk in the operating room and think, gosh, I hope I'm okay. Like, who's the, you know, right? Like that, I call that the self-aware superhero, which is just, you know, the distance from, from where you are, the fall would be really big, but there's another thing that's interesting that's going on. And that is, Anything that we do repeatedly, sometimes it comes natural to us, and that's fine. Other times, it's just gotten easy because we've done it so often. And when we do that, we make the mistake, and this is what financial planners do all the time, we make the mistake of thinking everybody does that. We make the mistake of thinking it's easy for everyone. Why would anyone need us? Because this is easy for everyone. And what I'm, what we really struggle to forget is it's not easy for everyone. Like, I, I'm like, oh, you know, this is dumb drawing this on a Sharpie, on a piece of cardstock. And th- I mean, anybody could do A kid. I mean, believe me, I've had plenty of people say that to me. Like, my seven-year-old could do that. Like, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, they probably can. Like, that's fine. But all I'm saying is, like, we, we tend to discount that, which we're good. The imposter syndrome actual definition is, despite external evidence to the contrary, we have a hard time internalizing our own value.
1: That's powerful. All right. Say that, say that again. I, w- I want to make sure everybody lets that sink in.
2: I realize as I did, I did it in the wrong order. The imposter syndrome is when you have a hard time internalizing your own value despite external evidence to the contrary. So you've got people saying, hey, this is valuable to me. And you're like, well, not really, whatever. And, and I think it's because of what I just said. It, it's become natural. It may have been natural from the beginning. You just may be naturally good at it. And because you're naturally good at it, you discount it. Because you think everybody else must be naturally good at it.
1: So I'm curious what you're working on now. So you you said like you're doing a book around just this imposter syndrome thing. What's it called again?
2: It's called Do It Anyway.
1: Do It Anyway.
2: And that's the message, by the way, just so you know. There is no solution. In fact, I don't think – this is where we make the mistake. We think we need to get rid of the imposter syndrome. And I'm telling you, you need to get more – (laughs) like, that feeling, we're just going to relabel it. Actually, it's okay if we still call it an imposter syndrome. We're just going to start thinking of it as a friend. Like, that's what started happening to me. I was like, hey, every time that guy shows up, something cool is about to happen. And and it may not work, but it's going to be cool. I, I started noticing, like, hey, this is the same feeling I have at the start line of a big mountain bike race. This is the same feeling I have at the top of a a ski run where there may or may not be some avalanche danger. This is the same feeling I have climbing. Like, I've been seeking this feeling my whole life. Like, every time you show up, my friend, I'm about to do – it may be I'm about to hit send or I'm about to hit post on the blog. So now if I can say to it, like – and this I borrowed this from Elizabeth Gilbert's conversation around fear, is you can say to it, like, hey, welcome back. Like, let's get to work. I'm glad you're here. And, and Elizabeth Gilbert points out like you can say to it like hey Mr. Imposter Syndrome, I know like you've been my friend, you've kept me safe. You're a f- close relative of fear who's kept me alive. Like last thing I want to do is punch fear in the face, right? Like it's kept you alive, but right now I'm just hitting publish, right? It's, it's no, no one's going to die over here. Y- y- you sit over there on the couch and hang out so that when we go outside you can be with me, right? Like that kind of feeling. So the book, do it anyway. Yeah, so
1: the Book. Do it anyway.
2: Yeah, which is feel the feeling and do it anyway. In fact, if you go to BehaviorGap.com right now, the homepage is I recorded videos of the ten chapters of what I think will be the book, and I'm giving them away and seeing what the feedback is. And
1: we'll make sure there's a link in the show notes as well. So, if folks want to check out Carl's website, Behavior Gap website, the the course you can get with the with the first. 10 lessons of the book, as well as we'll make sure there's a link to one page financial plan as well. So this is episode 14. So just go to kitsis.com slash 14, and we'll have links for all of that in the show notes for everyone. So what else are you working on? Because I know you've gone through some change lately. You you moved from the US to New Zealand. You dialed down your time with Buckingham and BAM BAM Advisor Alliance. So like are you just is this a big chunk of time off to write the book and refresh and pause or are are you working on like are there other pokers in the fire as well for you
2: yeah it's definitely not time off there is a bunch of like trying to get clear about my own right like I, i really wanted to get clear about my use of time You know my use of money. Like, what is it that I really value? And I got to be clear about the New Zealand thing. I'm going to write a big piece about this soon, which is I'm not independently wealthy, right? Like this, we we made this decision. Everybody, I keep getting emails from people saying I've always wanted to do that. I've always wanted to do that. I'm like, well, then why don't you do it with money? I'm like, well, look, all I'm saying is I don't have a bazillion dollars sitting in the bank that allows me to. We decided it was really important for our family. But one of the things I'm working on is called the Society of Real Financial Advisors. And I, I know I'm going to cause another you know little commotion. It's not meant to replace anything. It's kind of tongue in cheek. It's going to be the house.
1: Society How- of Real Financial Advisors.
2: Yeah. So if you go to realfinancialadvisors.com, realfinancialadvisors.com, you'll see the, the cool logo that we're going to make t-shirts.
1: We'll make sure that's in the show notes. So realfinancialadvisors.com. dot com. So, you can either type in directly or go to kitsis.com dot com slash fourteen. We'll we'll include a link out for it. Oh, look look at that! That's a that's a lovely logo you've got there. Yeah,
2: oh. it's pretty fun. Like we're gonna make patches out of it to put on hats and t shirts. But but it's not meant. By the way, it's not meant. In fact, I was just toying around with an idea earlier. Well, it's not meant to replace. The fantastic work that the Financial Planning Association does, or the CFP, or the CIMA, or IMCA, or any of those amazing organizations, it's not meant to replace it. It's just going to be the house for all of my work on financial advice. If I have anything of value to say about it, it's going to be there. So, my work for financial advisors is moving from Behavior Gap to realfinancialadvisors.com. That's where the podcast will be. That's where we're going to release a couple courses on you know again these courses will be like look my job i feel like marketing i've figured this out the last couple of weeks is not to convince anybody not to trick anybody to doing any of the stuff i do or reading a book or taking a course my job is solely i have really smart a really smart audience. You have a really smart audience. My job solely is to give people enough information to make a decision as to whether or not this will be valuable at this point in their lives. If it's not valuable, it doesn't make you a bad person. I got so sick of that, Michael. The marketing, like, hey, who's this course for? Who's this course not for? Well, this course is not for you if you don't believe in perpetual growth. (laughs) So so anyway, we'll be doing some work there on financial advice I'm trying to put my life's work there on that site.
1: So as we wrap up here into the end, I I guess I have two questions for you. N- number 1, you've watched the industry evolve over 20 plus years that you've been in the business, you know, from selling, you know, mutual funds and managers into evolving our value proposition beyond. So I'm curious like for Newer advisors who are coming into the industry today, or maybe even an experienced advisor who feels like they've kind of hit the wall and stagnated and is looking to, to refresh and for something new. Like what advice would you give advisors that are trying to grow today going forward over the next 10 years? Like where do you see the focus in a world where it's, it's not about the fund managers and it's not about producing the, the 50 page financial plan anymore? Like, how do you succeed in this financial advisor environment of the future that you're painting a picture of?
2: I think it's, I mean, to use a relatively academic term, I think it's about emotional intelligence, right? Which is really interesting to me because our industry, which is why I said it earlier, like you don't necessarily have to have all the spreadsheet knowledge. It may be that you have a technical person on your team that does that work that's really involved. But I do think for the most part, re- you've got to have the technical chops that used to be enough that used to be enough. And it's not anymore, but you still have to have them. So it's a requirement, but it's not sufficient. So I think now on top of that, so you could also think about it as the art and the science, right? You've got to know the science of financial planning. You've got to have the technical skills. But now I really feel like, because I, I get asked this question all the time, like what, what degree should I get if I want to be in this industry? And I, I don't know that the answer outside of the financial planning programs that are now, uh, you know, starting to pop up all over the place, which is awesome. But I don't know, you know, like, is the answer finance? I think it's more closer to marriage counseling or psychology.
1: Financial Therapy Association is starting to grow and emerge with this with this focus on, on kind of how do we help people with more of the psychological issues
2: around money? Totally. I I spoke there once and I decided to use it as a giant therapy session. It was so fun. I said here, look, I'm going to walk you through all the mistakes I've made
1: and and you guys can help me and we'll call it a learning
2: session. Yeah, it was it was amazing and they wanted to keep me afterwards and like, can we like they wanted to put me in like a lab. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like you've got so oh, much- you have to
1: be careful cuz there's a lot of academics in the in the financial therapy association. They will put you in a lab if you give them an opportunity.
2: This was at that beautiful university in Missouri. Kansas State University. No, in Missouri, up in, God, so beautiful. Oh, why am I? It was, yeah, Ms. U. So Missouri University. Like it was, anyway, yeah, it was amazing. It was really fun. But I'm, I yes, I think closer to that. I don't know exactly what it's called, but I do think if you wanted to get really specific, it would be communication skills. Like learn, stop focusing on how to sell and start, learn, and, and learn how to listen. How to ask really great questions and learn. And I'll give you an even more specific answer. If I were going out and if I was in the industry, and I wanted to get coaching in the industry, what I would do is I'd get coaching around the first meeting that you have with a prospect. I would, and maybe not even coaching, let me give you more specific. Go take your iPhone, get something that will record your meetings. Sit down with a client and say to the client, I'd like to record today's meeting. Have you ever watched a movie twice? Yes, I have. The second time you watched a movie, did you hear things you didn't see the, or see things you didn't see the first time? Yes, I have. What you're going to say to me is so important to me that we're going to review it internally. Do you mind if I record it? I've never had anyone say no. Then you say... Okay, great. Let's get started. You hit record. You put the recorder, since you've asked for permission, put the recorder behind a coffee mug or something so it just doesn't...
1: Out of line of sight so people aren't
2: obsessing about it. Of course, ask for permission first. Let's get that clear. I think we did. But once you do, you put it on the line of sight. then start listening to those. I, I can tell you no one listening. Actually, your audience is far more proactive than most audiences. So there will be people who do this. There but, will be people that do this. Yes. Yeah, I'm telling so. you, nothing will change your sort of improvement slope faster than listening to that with one member of your staff? Do ten of those, and I think you'll be in a completely different world. You'll be shocked by how much you talk. So maybe
1: first review it privately, because otherwise we're just going to amplify our imposter syndrome <laughs> even more.
2: Yeah, I think you just pretend like you're. It's like you've signed up for self improvement. You know, like whatever the, the the what would that be called? The uh, Navy SEALs boot camp. Like you just got a shock therapy. So anyway, I think that's where it's headed, is getting better at listening, better at communicating. Emotional intelligence is where I think it's headed. After, of course, you have the technical chops to even get in the game.
1: So as we wrap up here, you know, this is a show about success. And, and one of the things I've long observed about success is that it, it it actually means very different things to different people and and even evolves for us over time as we grow. And so as someone who's built what, I think objectively most people would call a a very successful business and career not notwithstanding your own imposter syndrome doubts about yourself. I'm curious for you like at this point how do you define success?
2: Yeah, so let me give you two. So one I was going to say setting aside like my life, right? Like so I I I mean, so the personal definition versus the professional definition. I'll give you two. The personal would be, you know, success obviously No, there's a great saying in, actually in the church I belong to, somebody said once, no success outside, no success outside can compensate for failure within the walls of your own home, right? Like clearly success for me is all about my family and the time I get to spend with them. And for us, that means mainly outside, which is why I, we spend so much time, you know, river rafting and I'm learning to kite surf with the kids and we're taking sailing lessons. So that clearly like the freedom to do that stuff is the definition of success for me but professionally success for me is I just gosh I just I just want permission I just want permission to keep trying things and saying here I hope you like this right so if if I can build like to me success is having a little platform that allows me to keep nudging people in a direction like actually here's how I define it change at scale
1: change at scale. So the ability to bring about change at scale, ability to build a platform where you can drive change at scale.
2: Yeah, just permission from I you know I'm trying to get away from all these words like platforms and but yeah, that's exactly the word I use, but I'm just thinking is there a large enough group of people that appreciate the work I'm doing that I can keep doing it. That to me is success. Like can I do one more project? Can I do do it anyway? And can do it anyway be a commercially successfully enough to allow me to do it again. And, I, and I'd and i really like to do this for till the day I die, right? So I'm talking, you know, 40 more years. So I can't jeopardize that trust f- that I've built over the long haul for one single commercially viable product, right? Like I can't eat the seed corn, as they would say. So, So yeah, success for me is can I make change at scale? And all I mean by that is... Can I just have permission to do it again? I think
1: that's an awesome place to wrap up right there. I'm excited to see how you try to build it again with the new real financial platform that we're not going to call a platform. Well, thank you, Carl. Thank you for joining us on financial advisor success podcast.
2: Oh, Michael, thank you. And again, please. I'm sure you hear this a lot. People like you and I can never hear it enough. Like, thank you for the generous work you're doing. Like you don't have to do this. And We all really, really appreciate it. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.